Hello, welcome. It's good to come down from... Oh yeah, I'll have a clicker. It's good to come down and be with you from time to time. I wonder, have you ever bought anything and then been disappointed? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's lots of adverts, aren't there? That, you know, the product's going to be better, quicker, cleaner, simpler, tastier, new and improved, isn't there? There's lots of adverts like that. And perhaps you've been, been persuaded to give it a try and buy and then uh, not quite lived up to his expectations, wondering why they get away with such misleading claims, perhaps. You know, Ron Seal does what it says on the tin. Yeah? <laughs> Recently, I was looking to buy a product, uh, so I had a look at a few reviews and one of them actually said, didn't do what it said on my tin. <laughs> that was all he wrote. <laughs> yeah. Of course, reviews, they can vary widely, can't they? And uh, you, know, you have to make your own decisions in the end. Uh, it does you know, surprise me sometimes, you get a load of one stars and a load of five stars, and they're just so opposite. You know, well, who's right? You haven't got a clue in the end, have you? But this morning, it's uh, an introduction to our series on James, and uh, it has the, the heading, Living as a Disciple of Jesus. So, what's advertising got to do with James? Well, do we sometimes misrepresent what it means to be a Christian? We're often reminded, aren't we, believe in God, follow Jesus. Jesus is the answer. Although someone did say to me once, what was the question then? Um, But we get those sort of slogans, don't we? But they don't always give the full picture. Because there's also a cost. There's a commitment and uh, a change in lifestyle that's required. In uh, Corinthians, Paul says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. It's interesting, isn't it, that we often point people to Jesus, and rightly so. But what if they looked at us to see what it means to follow Jesus? What would they see? What sort of example would we be? Because that's what the basis of the series is all about, really. Are we living up to that high calling of being a disciple of Jesus? And so, because it's an introduction, we don't have a specific test, a text, not test, you're right, <laughs> text uh, for this morning. Actually, this morning is a bit different in that sense because it's somewhere between a sort of study and a sermon. It's an overview of James and it's setting the scene for more to come. But... I saw one key verse, or, or a couple of verses, uh, which are chapter, uh, verse 17 and 18 in chapter 2, which say, faith by itself is not accompanied with action. So if it's not accompanied by action, uh, it's dead. But some will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. They're verses that sometimes pitch James against Paul. That's what some some of the people argue. Who's right? Well, Paul also wrote in Galatians, know that a person is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ, and not by observing the law. Because by observing the law, no one can be justified. Law and deeds are what people see uh, as a similar thing. Now we're going to pick that up a little bit later and obviously in the coming weeks that's going to be 
talked about a lot more. But who's right? Who's wrong? Well, you have to work that one through in the coming weeks. But it's getting that balance between the free gift of justification by faith and nothing else but that balance with how we live out our faith. Can we live a life of faith without it showing in how we live and in what we do? Because that's what James is writing about. So James starts his letter, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. That's it. Simple, short, but it's also more than just a greeting. It's a clear, personal statement. It says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Can we put our name in the place of James if we were writing that letter? Would that greeting still read true? But first, who is James? When did he write his letter? And who too? Well, there are three James in the New Testament. There's James, the brother of John. He was one of the twelve disciples who was put to death by Herod in around about 44 AD, they think. And it's pretty unlikely that he wrote the letter because 44 AD, some of the content of the letter, it wouldn't make quite the right sense. Then there was James, son of Alphaeus. He was also one of the twelve. You know, I'd forgotten there were two James in the disciples. Must have got a bit of confusion at times when they sat around the table. James, yeah, oh, no, no, that James, not that James. <laughs> I don't know whether they had a nickname for each other. Perhaps one was known as Jim, I don't know. Um, but that James, James, son of Alphaeus, there's no record of him after the resurrection. We don't hear any more about him. So it's quite unlikely that he would have written the letter because how could he have just written James? You know, it, it wouldn't have been clear to people who it was that was writing. So it's most likely that it would have been James, the brother or half-brother of Jesus because he was also the leader of the Jerusalem church. So he would have been well known uh, by the early Christians. And also... As leader of the Jerusalem Council, the whole sort of early church council, they had to meet and talk about some issues about whether Gentiles had to become Jews and then they had to become Christians, whether they had to be circumcised. And you may remember that they then wrote a letter to the church in Antioch uh, to explain what their findings were, how they thought they ought to go. And that letter is in Acts 15. And that opens... I'm not going to read it as such, you can see the style is almost exactly the same as this James was writing. So it all points towards James, the half-brother or brother of Jesus, having written this letter. But I wonder, how did James come to be a follower? How easy would it have been for a younger brother, growing up in a family, to come to the point of worshipping and following his oldest brother? Because there's also a couple of verses in the Gospels that might indicate that James became a believer after Jesus' death and resurrection rather than during his life. Because it says in Mark, 
Jesus' family thought he was out of his mind. And then in John, it says even his own brothers didn't believe him. What changed and when? I mean, we don't know whether James came to faith suddenly, like Paul did on the road to Damascus, or or did he sit under Jesus' teaching and gradually come to a realisation? But whenever and however it was, he had obviously risen to become the leader of the Jerusalem church and so was very influential in the early church. But he's also very practical because this is a very practical letter. It's an easy book to read through in one go. I read it again this morning before I came to speak and it took about 20 minutes. Couldn't say that, could you, of reading Romans or something like that. It's not quite as straightforward to read, is it? But if the dating is correct, it would probably have been the first book of a New Testament that was written, chronologically, even before the Gospels. It would have been after Stephen had been martyred, because that led to the scattering of the Christians, who then went out to spread the good news, the Gospel, and therefore many churches were born. But they didn't have much leadership. People were coming to faith because they believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. They were saved. They were justified by faith. But was the way that they were living changing? They were gathering together, they were encouraging each other, they were supporting each other, but they didn't have much teaching on how their new faith should impact and change their lives, what it should look like. So James writes a letter. Simple. Some might call it a first century well, idiot's guide to Christianity, or Christianity made simple, or Christianity for dummies. These books are all available, by the way. Not then, but they are now. But however you think of it, it's written to ground new Christians in their faith. Who knows it? it? It might have been taken from the teachings that James and maybe others were giving to new believers in Jerusalem at that time a sort of cross between the first Alpha course and the discipleship course. Because if you think about it like that and read it like that, it's very practical. Now as a speaker, when you're asked to introduce a series, it's often difficult for us to know how much you cover. You don't want to steal someone else's thunder in in a few weeks' time, but you need to make sure that everything's put into context. So I'm going to outline a few points and, and give an overall picture. Now, James is very clearly familiar with all the teachings of Jesus because although he doesn't actually say, as my brother said, much of his letter is based on Jesus' teaching. Now, don't be put off by the next few slides. They look a bit formal. They're not, they're not meant to be. It's just an easy way to present it and I'm not going to read all of the verses. They're just references there to show what James writes is clearly from his knowledge of Jesus' teaching. And so where James says that we should pray without doubting, he echoes exactly what Jesus is teaching. He warns of the judge standing at the door, just as Jesus did. He warns against taking oaths lightly, as does Jesus. The rich are fiercely scrutinised, and Jesus warned about the trappings and the deceit of wealth. And then when James quotes the commandment to love your neighbour as yourself, he reminds us of how central that commandment was to Jesus' teaching. 
And we know that the Sermon on the Mount was also central to Jesus' teaching, explaining the spirit of the law and not just being restricted by the letter of the law. So just as Jesus explained the spirit of the Ten Commandments, James then puts a bit more flesh on them to help those early disciples and us to understand how we should live. So again, these are just real. I'm not going to read all these verses. There's encouragement to strive to perfection and the call to be doers of the word and not just hearers. Because in those days, and it can happen today as well, knowledge was often confused with true faith. So there's, there's a difference sometimes between the head and the heart because faith needs to make a difference to how we live. Both James and Jesus remind us to keep the whole law. We can't just pick out the bits that we agree with. And Jesus also said that he hadn't come to take away from the law but to fulfil it. He warns about how friendship with the world can make us opposed to God and then goes on to warn against passing judgment on others. And then finally he reminds us of the prophets as examples of righteousness and suffering. Exactly what Jesus said. So the believers he was writing to, and Christians today, we need to know that we would face opposition. So he covers a lot in his letter. He lays a strong foundation for new Christians to build their lives on. He was clearly very experienced as a Christian leader, wanting to apply the things that Jesus taught to real life. I do wonder sometimes whether it was a bit short of time when he wrote, because it's a fairly short letter really, it's punchy. It's a very short greeting as we saw and then straight into it. When you read the first chapter though, it might seem a bit like a random collection of disconnected thoughts that just come out, one thing after another as he thinks of things he wants to urge on his readers. But actually if you give it a bit more thought, and I have to say if you read a few more commentaries, which I did, it always helps, but there is a structure to it. Chapter 1 is a bit like the headlines at the beginning of the news telling us what to expect in the next half hour or so, although we're going to take a few more weeks. Um, But James then expands on those headlines in the later chapters. So, he briefly talks about the challenges of trials and temptations and then expands on that in chapter 5. He turns to the topic of wealth and poverty and expands on that in chapter 4. The issue of how we should speak to one another, he continues in chapter 3 and the importance of being doers and not just listeners or talkers, he develops further in chapter 2. And his last two subjects, the nature of true wisdom is fleshed out in chapter 3. And finally, he talks about the importance and structure of the prayer in chapter 5. So there is some structure there that helps to sort of get that idea when you read it through. James doesn't share his teachings or his insights for us to argue about or debate. He simply puts them down there as words that we should be living by. He writes to challenge Christians with their need to take Jesus at his word 
and to walk the talk. To take Jesus and our faith seriously, not as an add-on, but as a way of life. His readers, young Christians, may have declared their faith, but they'd have been in danger of slipping back if they didn't know how to apply it. That makes his letter as relevant today as it was when he wrote it. Different commentators, as you can imagine, divide up James's letter a bit differently. But they all agree that there are five main things. And that's these. Starting with prayer. Very early in his letter he reminds us to pray. He could say, before all things, pray. Because at the heart of the Christian faith is relationship between us and our Lord Jesus. Christianity is a faith of relationship. It's not intellect or doing, although they both have their place, but fundamentally relationship. Everything we do should nurture that relationship. So clearly an ongoing conversation is obviously essential. Throughout his letter, James talks about prayer, but he also talks about the tongue which we use to pray with. So he warns that it's no good praying if in the next breath we use our tongue to attack our neighbour. And then he talks about faith and works. This is where sometimes that disagreement comes, with some saying that he's contradicting Paul's teaching on justification by faith alone. But they're actually, Paul and James, arguing different cases. Paul is responding to those who say that Gentiles have to become Jews before they can become Christians, whereas James is talking about how we live as Christians. Works are what indicate that someone has faith. They're the fruit of faith. Does my faith result in me sharing my possessions, feeding the hungry, showing practical love to a neighbour? If so, then it's probably genuine. But if not, then we may have problems. That's all James is saying. And I don't think Paul would disagree with him. That's partly the reason why we read Romans 12 earlier. It encourages us to use all that God has given us, not to hide them away, but to use them. Paul, of course, wrote the letter to the Romans. Of course, works and actions will be as we are able. You know, God does not expect any more of us than we're able to give. And that neatly moves on to the third theme, wealth and possessions. He writes more about this subject than any other, explaining that our attitude to and our use of money and things is something we need to really consider as we think about the quality of our faith. One commentator asked whether it's this focus that might make James an unpopular letter to preach on. James makes some pretty strong comments about the rich and he offers some blunt teaching and challenges to sharing what we need to take heed of. James' letter was written when there was a famine and a lot of the wealthy landowners were claiming back land that they'd loaned to people who couldn't pay the rent. Many would have earned their living in those days as both landowners and labourers. 
I'm sure it's going to be a challenging sermon when we get to that one. And then suffering, trials and temptations. If we're loyal to Jesus, how he wants us to live, then we're going to face some opposition and hostility. James covers a lot in this area. Opposition from others, illness, struggles we often have within ourselves about how we live God's way. It costs to share our possessions and wealth. It hurts to see others progress the career ladder because our focus is elsewhere. It's painful to be separated from family who turn against you because of your faith. And of course we must never forget our brothers and sisters who are suffering under those in authority and are being directly persecuted for their faith. And then finally, he talks about Christian lifestyle, being marked by submission to God, being open and sincere and living our lives in simplicity. We have to consciously and continuously continuously submit ourselves to God and then we're going to hold things in perspective and live according to how he calls us to live. In a sense, this point on Christian lifestyle sums up all the other points. If we're open to God, sincere in our relationships, and live in simple faith, relying on God, then we're going to be living as Jesus wants us to live. Sometimes that means making a conscious decision in certain situations to step back. And that can be difficult. James also says it's better to be quiet and let our lives speak before we open our mouths. I've heard some preachers say we need to earn the right to speak, whilst others say talk can be cheap. I think we can understand both those sayings. It has to be backed up with action. Yes, we're called to to witness, but we need to recognise that witnessing involves the whole of our lives and not just words. The world we live in today is very different to the first century Christians. But the challenges aren't so different. We should be challenged as to how we live out our faith in the world today. And in his letter, and I'll I'll finish with these thoughts, but in his letter, James includes a number of short sayings that we do well to remember. They're a bit like proverbs that pop up in, in his letter and they're reminders of the things he's saying. Now I'm going to double click this slide because I changed it and I've got to take the old one out and I've gone back too far, there we go. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak and slow to become angry. You could imagine that written in Proverbs, couldn't you? Mercy triumphs over judgment. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a a harvest of righteousness. And the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. They're little words that you could almost have written on bookmarks or on your hand or, you know, know, they're those little ones, little nuggets that, that he drops in there. James wanted the early believers to grow into mature Christians so that they wouldn't flounder and fall back. And his letter was written to provide a solid grounding for them and no less for us. So over the coming weeks, 
may we hear what God has to say and make sure that we're not just hearers, but doers of his word.